Hi, this Long is Annette Ross. Radio. Hi, this is Annette Ross, host of Common Grass on the Sylvia Global Media Network. Today I'll be speaking with Kelly Debee, writer, mom, and superhero, not necessarily in that order. Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for asking. Um, before we get started, because we have a really fascinating topic, I just want to say that as much as sometimes I don't like social media and being a mom, you're a mom of four, I'm a mom of five, we both have probably our things to say about social media, but that is how I found you. A friend of mine in Montana posted your article on addiction, mental health, and a society that fails to understand either, and I read it, and I was so impressed. I went right to your blog after I read it. Um, then, I, then I was lost in your blog, reading and reading and reading. You wrote so many thoughtful pieces. But really, it was one of the most thoughtful pieces that I've ever read about addiction. And I said, this is a really special woman. She's caring. Um, and I don't care if someone is a PhD on this subject. Uh, I don't think that that's really what matters. I think we were all touched by the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Any of us who love the movies, I mean, he was a tremendous talent. And I just feel that it doesn't matter if we have a degree in this. It's just such a complicated and tricky issue, right? Yeah, it is. It's, it's a lot more complicated than most people think it is. And until you've been involved with it in some way, you can't really understand that, which is why I wrote the piece. And, and you've had a tremendous response. So, I mean, I'm just going to start to delve into the piece a little bit and talk a little bit about addiction. And um, I'll just bring up some of the things that you, that you said, and we'll start with that. I said, I've, I've known someone who's dealt with addiction, and I, I know from the piece that you have also um, people in your life that struggle with addiction. And one of the first things that you talk about is shame. Um, people hide it. People are, feel ashamed. People who have the addiction feel ashamed, I think, and the people who, know, people who have it don't want to tell other people that someone has it because they protect them. Right. So... Um, that's what do you think it is about exposing that that makes people feel so ashamed? Because you know what? I mean, why should we feel ashamed, right? I mean, I, I feel like if someone got to look at me closely, they'd find so many flaws. So what is it about addiction? I, I don't know. I wish I had an answer for you. Um, you know, I my personal theory is, um, you know, that, I mean, drug use has existed as long as human beings have existed, basically. I mean, we've always found a way to forget what we're feeling, to feel better, to take away the pain. You know, there's always been some substance that has been used to manipulate our reality for as long as we've been around. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't know that it always had such a high degree of shame attached to it. Um, my personal theory is that I think, you know, when... When, when my generation, when we were kids, we went through D.A.R.E. programs and we went through a lot of, um, you know, the war on drugs was really getting going and there was this shift almost in the way that drug use was viewed publicly and as a society. We, we went from seeing it as something that just happened to something that made people criminals that, um, you know, we wanted to say that it was a bad thing that they were doing and not only that it was a bad thing that they were doing, but even going to the extreme that sometimes they were just bad people. And I think that um, that message 
maybe it got oversold to people and people started to believe it and you know people also in the in the process stopped understanding that there were other mechanisms at work and that you know most people that are on drugs or addicted in general to anything um usually there's a reason you know usually there's something else going on and um you know but we kind of labor under this illusion that it's just the drugs and that that's the only component of it and i don't think it's really that simple no, I think it's more complicated than that, too. And you talk about, okay, there's so many things I could sort of uh, take apart with that. The first thing you said is about manipulating reality. I mean, okay, you think some people need to do that more than others? Obviously, obviously they do. I mean, is that something you think that we need to do with human beings, manipulate our reality? I mean, life is hard, so... Right, right. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily even... A bad thing. I mean, you know, you would look at, you know, people who are not alcoholics that drink, you know, why do they drink socially? You know, I mean, what's the, what's the motivation? What's the reason? And it's to have a good time. It's to lower your inhibitions. It's to, you know, whatever. And so you are manipulating your reality a little bit. Um, you know, and in most, most things that are like that, um, you know, your motivation is just to feel better, to have a good time. You know, maybe it's just a positive reason that you're doing it, but it might be a negative one as well. You might want to be trying to avoid thinking about something that's happening in your life or you might want to just stop feeling, you know, what you're feeling for a moment. And, um, you know, I think that there's always, there's a reason why we do this. And I think that people have always done it. I mean, not everybody, obviously, not everybody needs to or feels compelled to change their reality. But a lot of people do. And I don't think that it's necessarily something that there's a negative stigma attached to it, or there shouldn't be, um, because it is so common, and historically, that's what people have done. You know what? It's good that you bring that up about being historically. I think that that's absolutely accurate. I saw a documentary about about, um, drugs, and people have been using opiates, right, since I don't even know, way before I can tell you, because I don't remember that piece of it in the documentary exactly. So it's a little bit about escapism, and that's okay. But then it crosses over, right, and can become something quite dangerous. And, right. It's, it's um, when it becomes an, an issue of self-medication, um, you know, where you're actually utilizing the substance or the act or whatever it is that your addiction is based in. You know, once it becomes a crutch, once it becomes something that you're using habitually and that you feel like you need or you do actually begin to need it, you know, that's when you cross the line into addiction. How do you know when you cross over? Do you think people don't even recognize it themselves? I, I think it, you know, I, you know, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think there's so many components that go into addiction. I think there's definitely, I think there has to be some kind of a genetic component to it. You know, some people just seem more predisposed to developing these types of behaviors. Um, you know, where other other substances themselves can manifest addictive tendencies because the substance itself is addictive, like cigarettes and heroin and cocaine. You know, even a person who doesn't have that propensity can become addicted because the substance itself will make you physically dependent on it. Um, You know, and it's hard to tell, I think, sometimes where that line is. And, you know, sometimes people walk that line not really knowing which side they're on. Well, without telling me, um, you know, who or what or giving me any details that would be uncomfortable your own personal experience with knowing a person who dealt with addiction, and I would share mine too, but I am interviewing you, but I can also share. Um, what was that like 
for you and what was it like for them when it was sort of up close and personal? Well, I mean, it's it's frustrating to watch because it's not a rational experience. Um, you know, maybe the best experience um, that I can talk about is cigarettes, um, the addiction to cigarettes, because that is something that was directly in, uh, part of why my father died. He had lung cancer, and I watched him pass away. Um, you know, and it's not a rational process. Like, he knew at some point, you know, not when he started smoking because they said that it was safe then and it wasn't dangerous, but... You know, at some point in his adult life, you know, we knew. He knew that it was that it was dangerous, and he knew that it could make him sick, and he knew that it could give him cancer, and he knew that it could kill him, and he knew that he should stop. Um, but it's not always just as simple as stopping. You know, it's not a, it's not an entirely rational proposition because there's there's the addiction that's involved too, and it's not just the physical addiction, which is a huge part of it with certain substances like nicotine. Um, you know, but there's a social aspect of it, and just you're forced to have it. This is what you've always done. You know, and hard, it's to break all of those things at one time takes a tremendous amount of strength and willpower and the willingness to do it every single day. You know, where, um, you know, once you get into that, once you're, once you're into the addiction, it's a lot harder to quit, I think, than most people will ever understand unless they've been there. And, you know, when you're on the outside of it, watching it, it's hard to see, it's hard to see it as and only look at it as a rational situation like, well, they should, because they should. They should quit. Well, they know, but it's, it's not that simple. No, it's not, because you think to yourself, well, you're saying to someone, okay, well, you might die if you don't. I mean, you think that if Philip Seymour Hoffman knew that it might lead to his death, although in those interviews early on he said he stopped early on because he thought it would lead to his death, you know, right. and so he had that long hiatus of not using. You think that you say that to someone, that would be a compelling enough reason, like, okay, I want to be around. Um, so I'm not going to do that. My brother ended up living in his car. I mean, how does that happen? I mean, to someone that you know and love, grew up in the same family as me, you know what I mean? Um, He just, he lost everything, and it just just withered away. Right. And and that's the part of it. It's not not something that you can just boil down to, well, you should stop doing it. I mean, they know they should stop doing it. You know, whether they want to try to stop or not, you know, that's the first piece of it. But then it's whether they can and whether the resources are there and whether the, the infrastructure is there to help them quit once they get to the point where they want to quit. You know, but I don't think that it's, I don't think anybody's kidding themselves. I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, my, I don't, my parents knew that cigarettes would kill them. They knew that, you know. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'm pretty, I, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that in the weeks leading up to his death, he had made statements that, you know, he he thought that this might kill him, and he did it anyway. You know, so it's not, you know, he had kids. He had, you know, he had a great career. He had all kinds of things to live for. So if you're just looking at it strictly as, well, does this make sense? No, probably not, but it's not, it's not entirely a clearly, clearly thought-out rational process either. No, it's not rational, which is why there are many people who responded to your piece saying, well, it angered them. Because they're saying, well, you know, for then what about those who are left behind, right? It angers them. The addict, the addicted person angers them. And you're being, I thought, you had a very compassionate voice for the person who was the addict. You do talk about mental health. So that's sort of a a gray area, I think. I don't think you were saying, I think you're saying mental health is a component. I don't think you're saying that everyone, are you saying that everyone who has an addiction has a mental health problem? 
No, of course oh, you, not. No, I mean, of course no, not. it's just, it, there's, there's, you know, and, and this is one of those things that I, I don't, I'm not in the, I'm not a professional in the field, so I don't know the actual No, statistics. nor am I. You're just saying it's a um, component that's overlooked or? Right, and I've ha- actually had quite a few people within the field reach out to me as a result of this, and, you know, some of them have said that they actually are finding evidence of comorbidity between mental illness and um, drug addiction specifically, but addiction more generally. Um you know, that it can be as high as 80%, maybe even higher than that. Um, you know, so in, a, in those cases, it's almost always a precursor to the drug addiction, although some people would make the argument that addiction is in and of itself a mental illness. Um, you know, but there's, in a, in a lot of people, and I'm not saying at all, because, I, you know, everything has an ex- exception. Uh, in a lot of people, there's underlying issues that they're self-medicating for, and that's how they get to this place. So what were the... The mental health issues, like um, like depression, is that, is that those kind of mental health issues, or those or mm-hmm. bipolar, any of those disorders, I guess. Yeah, any. Saying. I mean, any any disorder that people you know that people live with on a daily basis that they don't have the ability to cope with, don't you know, don't feel comfortable seeking help for, and even if they do, you know, even if they do seek help for it, and there is a system in place for them to receive that help, you know, sometimes it's just. You know, there's there's also there's there's a huge stigma in our society about mental health in general. Like, you know, you're not supposed to be depressed. You're supposed to be happy. You're not supposed to have anxiety. You're supposed to be relaxed mm-hmm. and calm. You know, I mean, so there's well, Kelly. You know, there's I'm telling of, you, yes, yes. There's a huge stigma about it, isn't it? Frustrating. Like, mm-hmm. who do you know that is totally mentally healthy? I don't think I know exactly. anybody. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, I think that I think that our society is just kind of kidding itself when it comes to the, the whole mental health portion of it, because I think that, you know, I think that a lot of us have a lot of things going on, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with saying, I had postpartum depression, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. There's nothing, you know, I have had those conditions. I live with them. I have anxiety disorders. I, you know, I, but I'm not the average person who, you know, the average person isn't necessarily going to say, I have all these things and then write about them publicly for other people to read. Um, You know, and I I don't know why that is. I don't know why we're so afraid to admit that that we have these things that, you know, that make us a little bit different than what society expects us to be. Um, You know, but it it does, it definitely does seem to be a stigma associated with it. And, um, you know, and as, and as long as that is part is a precursor to addiction, I don't think we're ever going to get away from addiction. We're never even going to be able to deal with it until we deal with the background stuff. You, you know, you said that in your piece, dealing with the background stuff, because I do think the shame comes in, and I do think that people do shame other people and judge them and think that they're mm-hmm. maybe weak, and that the whole thing about being flawed, you know, comes in. Instead of being sensitive and being realistic about ourselves, I mean, half my family thinks my brother uh, was just a jerk, and then there was half my family, I come from a big family, who was more like me and thought, I don't think he really wants to be living in his car. There's something going on here. Let's try right. to help him, you know, or right. figure it out. Now, right. you say something. Well, and it's, it's hard. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say it's hard because I think, that, I think that our knee-jerk reaction sometimes is to just say, well, they just want to be like this. They choose to be like this because then we can absolve ourselves of responsibility and we can say, you know, they have to fix this themselves because they got there by themselves and this is all their fault. You know, and I think that that, I mean, first of all, it's completely, I mean, we need more compassion in our society and we need to not 
blame other people all the time for their situations. And, you know, and it's not, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that the pointing fingers and the blame and all that, it just, it goes back to the whole shaming thing. And, you know, addiction is, you know, it's a part of it's a part of everybody's life. I mean, you might think that you don't know anybody who's an addict, but I can promise you most people do know somebody and they just might not know about it. <laughs> you know, I think that we're kidding ourselves when we, you know, a lot of the criticism that came in after I wrote the piece were from people who said, you know, I mean, just point blank that, you know, he made a choice. He was selfish. He was weak. He was flawed. He was all of these other things. And, you know, and at the end of the day, if you if, if that's the assumption you're working on, how is it ever going to help people that are in that place to just blame them? How is that ever going to make anything better? How is that going to help their family? How is it going to help the people that are trying to help them or the ones that are left behind? It's not going to help anybody. It's just going to make everybody feel like it's their fault. Speaking of the, okay, um, this is a perfect opportunity for me. Can I read to you just... I don't know if you had a chance to read all the responses from your blog, did you? I have tried. I can't, you know, at this point, I can't even get my blog to load all of the comments. (laughs) (laughs) I know know there's like, the most I think I've ever been able to see was like 200, but there's over 300 on there now, I think. And I I can't get it to open my page completely, so I don't know if anybody else can see all of them. Um, So can can I share just one of them, and then I want to get your thoughts about what this mother said. Sure. Okay. As a mother of a son addicted to methamphetamine, I guess that's meth, I can't say it properly, for years and years I appreciate your article and agree with much of what you said. However, the pain and heartache of watching your addicted adult child struggle, make himself homeless, friendless, cut off from everything, and unable to even articulate a coherent sentence is too much to bear. My son is a criminal, a thief with no respect for anyone, not even his infant nephews. He's non-functioning and reveling in his ability to cook dope. He wears the title of a chef like a crown. I wait daily for the call, but he's blown himself up for others. He hides himself behind a false sense of self because he knows he's unable to face reality. In his sort of worldview, the dope world is better. This comes from a person who admits having been awake for 20 days at the stretch. It's amazing that he still lives. At some point, he's got to choose differently for himself. For the sake of my own health and well-being, that part I thought was interesting, I had no choice but to detach from him and his narcissistic, masochistic behavior. I believe it's our responsibility as good parents and citizens to show our children what's acceptable and unacceptable behavior. If they choose not to adhere to social norms, we as parents and family members do not have to subject ourselves, compromise our safety and freedom, simply because our addicted loved ones refuse to get to the root of their issues. Indeed, our mental health system is woefully lacking, but there are programs. That's a start. He may choose death for himself, and I may never regain the precious little boy I keep seeing over and over in my mind's eye, but I've concluded that I am powerless to that change in his life. He has to do this alone, fight the battle for the rest of his life. This is his karmic path. I don't know what to say about it. his karmic path, but what do you think about her response? Um, well, I think, you know, I think it was written from a place of, of a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of pain in her words. And a lot of pain, yes. I don't think that, you know, as a parent, you come to that place quickly or easily or willingly. I think you get to the point where you have to do what you need to do to protect your own life and your own sanity. Um, you get to that point after you've fought and fought and fought and fought and you've tried for a long time. And, you know, I I, I didn't make it as clear in the initial piece as I probably should have, but, you know, I 
when I wrote it, there, it was never with any expectation that the friends and family members of addicts are supposed to always be there. You know, that's 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 wrong. That that would be impossible. I mean, I think that we all have our limits. We all have our point where we can't do it anymore. And when you've tried to help somebody who doesn't want it, who's not ready, who you know, isn't in a place where they're ready to accept help, no matter how you give it, um, you know, you're fighting an uphill battle and you're banging your head on a wall. And you can only do that for so long before you can't do it anymore. You know, so I think it's only, you know, it's human nature to eventually become, you know, self-invested again, once you, especially once you've given so much time and energy to trying to fix somebody else. Um, you know, and the, you know, and accepting the point that you can't fix someone else, they have to fix themselves, is rough. It's it's not something that you can come to easily or without a lot of inner struggle and guilt. And, you know, there's a lot of emotional stuff that's wrapped up in that process. Um, you know, so I, don't, I would never fault her in the least for, you know, doing what she needs to do to, to protect herself. Um, you know, and I, I understand that, you know, I think... I think a lot of people get to that point where they just can't do it anymore. No, I understand too. I mean, I think it gets tricky, you know, the enabling, if it is enabling, or being there. But you're a mom. I'm a mom. Our kids are younger, um, but they'll grow up. And can you um, can you imagine ever turning your back on your kid? I'm not judging her. I'm, I agree with you. I mean, I, I don't know her at all, uh, obviously, I'm saying even in my family being divided about how to handle my brother, um, me sort of being the kind of person to stay the course with him as much as I could, other people sort of shutting off and saying they'd done what they could do. As a parent, I don't know, I feel pretty invested. Right. Well, I would tend to to agree with you. I I can't personally imagine a situation where I would, you know, wash my hands with my kids and walk away. Um, you know, no matter what happened, but, you know, I don't, I don't know if, I, I don't know. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it, at some point I stopped believing that I could ever guess what I would do in a hypothetical situation that I haven't been in yet. I have had to set very firm boundaries with family members um, because, for self, self-preservation purposes. Um, you know, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a different situation, but... Um, you know, when you've tried and tried and tried and tried to help somebody and it's only hurt you and it's never helped and they don't want it and they turn it around on you and they use it against you, you know, you can you can only do that for so long and, you know, I have had to go through that process of, you know, kind of distancing myself from people, um, even people that are in my immediate family. Um, you know, but with my kids, I don't know. You know, I... I can't. I can't say what I would ever do, and I hope I'm never in that situation. No, I hope I'm. I mean, I hope not either. I do have a friend who has dealt with a child with mental illness, and I do agree with what you said also in the piece about mental illness being we're really lacking and having a really good conversation about it as a society. We're really lacking in the help that can be needed. They right away medicated this child with lithium, which is a really powerful drug. He's a kid. Yeah. He's little. And now even that, I would say, diagnosing a child that young, 
with mental illness, I don't even know. I mean, these are supposedly professionals, you know, the doctors and people with their degrees, having earned their degrees. The parents frustrated not knowing what to do, and they they institutionalized him, which I think um, he made some comments maybe about a bomb or something. Okay, they were... They were, they were not comments that made anyone feel comfortable, I agree. And in this day and age, you can't say things like that, right, because things do happen and people do right. get hurt and you don't, we want to protect, you know, innocent people for sure. Um, unfortunately, the lithium was so strong and it right away went into this whole thing. When, so when you brought up mental illness and how sorely we're lacking um, and how quickly people get medicated, I mean, what do you think yeah. about that? Do you do you agree that we're a little over-medicated, or what do you think? Well, I mean, I think in general we probably are over-medicated probably for a lot of things. <laughs> you know, and I don't intend to be flippant, but I kind of do, because I think that, you know, our society, we're so conditioned that there should be a pill to fix everything. Um you know that there should just be a, there should be a cure, and you should be able to go to a doctor, and they should be able to tell you what's wrong with you, and they should be able to give you a prescription that'll fix you. And you know, it's it's rarely ever that simple. But um, you know, there are some some situations where I think people might rush into you know med- using medications where there might be other options. Um, you know, on on the other end of it, you know, there's people who have chronic pain issues that desperately need to have their pain managed and it's and they can't get enough medication that actually does what it's supposed to do you know so i think it's 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 a two-ended sword there because you know some people are are probably medicated for things that they either don't really have or don't need to be on medication for there's other options or you know maybe there were things they could have tried first um i don't know you know maybe maybe people are over medicated i don't know it's hard to say i mean and that's one of those things that unless you're in that family unit unless you're dealing with it. I don't think any of us really know what anybody else is facing in their houses with their kids, especially. Um, you know, and mental illness with children is another issue because, I mean, they go through so many changes as they grow up that there's all kinds of hormonal things and there's all kinds of other things that happen and they can change so drastically in such a short period of time. And what might seem like a mental illness, you know, in one month, in a couple of months, they may have outgrown whatever that phase is. And in the meantime, if you captured that, that short period of time and you said, well, I think they have this, you know, maybe they're bipolar or maybe they're, you know, maybe they're depressed or maybe they're whatever. Um, you know, if you're, if you're only looking at, you know, short little windows of time and you're diagnosing people, especially children, based on episodic periods, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's misleading. I don't know. You know, I'm not, I'm not a professional. So I can't really speak no. to No, you know, specific. neither one of us are. I just, really the point of, um, and, I, and you know, you said that now, and I just want to say, yes, I, I definitely know that by um, calling you on the show to talk about addiction, it was based on, you know, your personal thoughtful feelings about, and you wrote this beautiful piece that got, you know, an overwhelming response. I think because people thought it was lovely and filled with compassion and dealt with the complexities of the issue, and there wasn't a lot of judgment. I mean, I have a daughter, and I don't know, you, your kids are a little younger than mine, but, you know, you can already see, I'm sure, how different they all are, who's mm-hmm. definitely more of a thrill seeker than my other ones. She, <laughs> likes the mu- she likes the music loud. She is a high sensory person. Well, I, don't, I like things more quiet. She, you know, and she likes the car to be driven faster, you know, that kind of a thing. 
I think to myself in my mind, are these things I need to be, you know, would she be the one to try something? And sure enough, you know, my instinct as a parent was right. She tried, you know, she tried drinking. She's young, I think, to try that. Now, I think other people, high school, of moms of kids in high school would say, oh, come on, you know, they all try drinking. Well, I didn't. I don't know. You know, she's my first. She's just, you know, I, I, I don't know. But interesting to me, I wonder, because she is the kind of person who likes to feel things and have mm-hmm. different sorts of feelings as experiences, if she would be more likely to give it a go or even be more likely to be easily addicted. You know, because this is the thing. If you said to me, hey, this would make you laugh or, like, hallucinate, I'd be like, get it away from me. I do not want an experience of being surprised. I don't want that experience. I'm the antithesis of my brother and the antithesis of my, of my own daughter, who I'm like, what? You know, she was like, Mom, I know somebody tried this, and they said they were laughing all the time. I'd be like, oh, why? You know, watch a good comedy. You know, I just can't. So I can't. <laughs> at least I can admit I can't relate. Right. Well, and I think that's I think that's part of the the larger issue is that you know I think a lot of the judgment comes from people who, you know, don't have any any tendency towards addiction and can't understand what it's like, you know, or maybe they don't have any mental health issues to worry about, and so they have always had a clear mind and they've always been able to be rational and reasoned and, you know, and and but their if your experience your experience is necessarily limited to what your experience is. But you have to understand that, you know, other people, as you've learned and I've learned, it, especially as mothers, you know, each human being is its own human being. Everybody's different. Everybody's got different, you know, motivations. Everybody's got different passions. Everybody's got different ways they see the world. Um, you know, and just because we don't see things the way that they see them or we don't experience things the way that they do doesn't mean that one of us is right and one of us is wrong. It just means that it's different. And you have to kind of embrace that difference. You know, not, I don't think you should be afraid of it. I don't think it should be something that intimidates people. But I think that, um, we tend, I think that people in society tend to judge each other too much if they don't fall into the same experience grouping that I do. You know, if, if, if somebody else has a completely different experience, then, you know, am I qualified to judge them? So, I mean, that's just me personally. I don't think that I'm qualified to judge other people's experiences. But it seems like a lot of, people in our society believe that. You're right. We only have our experiences, and they're limited. So for the experiences that we don't get to have, because we're not going to experience everything in our short time here on Earth, we might judge rather quickly um, someone else. I think that we often do that. How do you think you've gotten to the place of, you know, really a tender and beautiful you become this i think you have a beautiful compassionate and tender voice sensitive how do you think you got there oh i feel the way you were raised (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but i'd like to know because i think that's important yeah i just i've had a lot of um i've had a lot of varied life experiences i've endured a lot of loss and i've been through um you know just a lot of situations where i've been on you know i've been on the I guess, I don't want to call it the, the side of the victim, but, I mean, for lack of a better word, you know, I've been, I've been taken advantage of by people. I've been used by people. I've probably enabled people I shouldn't have because I thought I was helping for too long, and then I had to stop. You know, and I think you, you 
I think it's I think we are a product of our experiences and the more things good, bad or indifferent that you have happen to you, they build who you are as a person and um you know, they can shape your view of the world and I know that I'm a lot more open minded than I used to be. Um, you know, one of the one of the best experiences of my life, which I think probably changed me more than most of my other experiences was um I used to work at an, an a legal clinic where all of my clients were AIDS patients or HIV positive. And in addition to that, they also had to be indigent. They had to be below a certain income level to be eligible for our services. And, um, you know, you learn a lot about people when they're facing death. And, um, you know, most of my clients were gay men, not all of them. But, and then, you know, I would say probably, if I had to guess, probably 20 to 30% of them were also um, at some point in the past IV drug users. And so they weren't really 100% sure where they picked up the virus from. Um, you know, but just spending as much time as I spent with people like that, they opened my eyes to an entirely different world than I had ever been exposed to before. And you learn a lot of compassion when you, especially when you're helping people dying. I mean, I had a lot of clients die. So, you know, when you go through something like that and you see the way that these stories unfold, I think you learn to love other people in a different way. Was that really sad? Um, yeah, it was it was rough. I mean, you know, I worked there for, gosh, it was about two years. Um, you know, and every once in a while the phone would ring and we'd get another call that somebody else was gone. And uh, it was hard. It was really hard. I, I wrote a lot of wills. That's mostly what I did. And um, I think the hardest one was, the hardest client that I lost was a uh, 23-year-old. I, I should call him a man, but he was more like a boy because <laughs> he was younger than I was. And or no, was he? Yeah, he was younger than me. Um, I was in law school at the time, and, um, you know, I had drafted his will, and he was, you know, taking into consideration that in order to be eligible for our services, they had to be poor. Basically, they had to be below a certain income level. And, um, you know, so most of the, these clients that I was writing will for didn't have anything. So they didn't have anything left. They didn't have anything to leave to anybody. And a lot of them have been disowned by their, by their families. So they really didn't even have anyone to leave anything to but to have, you know, as much stuff taken care of as they could so that the people they left behind didn't have to worry. And um, so anyway, I had this 23-year-old client who I took him his will the day that he died, and I saw him about an hour before he died. And that one was rough. That one was really hard on me. <laughs> but, um, you know, but it's... Wait, were they were they dying alone? Um, he had a couple of his friends with him. I think he had, like, one, I want to say he had one female family member that was still around, but um, everybody else had bolted on him. His parents had disowned him. So. Because he had AIDS? Because he was gay. And they didn't like that. And that um, happened to far more of my clients than I ever had any appreciation of before. And actually, my, my favorite story, which I've, I've written about this one on my blog a couple times. Um, wasn't a will. It was a guy who came in because he was noticing his friends were dying. <laughs> and he thought he should do a bunch of stuff ahead of time just in case. And so he came in and I was doing his interview and um, we got to talking and he said that he started, he broke down in tears when I asked him who he wanted to leave his belongings to. And, and he said, well, I don't know, I guess, you know, just my friends because my parents disowned me and, and he, he started talking about how it had just crushed him that his 
his father in particular had wanted nothing to do with him and um so we you know we ended up talking for probably over an hour and and he said something about how he wished that he could just wake up as a new person and i said well you know actually i might be able to help you with that and he, and he said well how are you going to do that and i said well i can't change who you are and i can't change who your birth parents are but we can change your name and and he said really you know we can do that and i said yeah it's actually a pretty simple process you just have to fill out a couple forms and then you have to you know, issue notice to anybody who might challenge it, and then you go before a judge. And um, he did. He changed his name. He uh, changed his last name. And mm-hmm. it was it was the most amazing experience because he, he said that I had helped him with that one simple thing, just filling out one piece of paper, more than anybody else ever had as far as accepting who he was. And he felt like he had a new lease on life now. He could be who he was, and he didn't have to be encumbered by that anymore. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so when you when you do things so, like that, you help people like that. It's you know, it, it you learn stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I you know, I I I want to believe that I've helped these people, but I think that they've helped me so much more because I've learned so much from them. That's so that's so intense and so emotional. Wait, so mm-hmm. but he wasn't. He thought he was going. To, he he wasn't sick though. Right. He was a, he was HIV positive. He was um, his viral loads were very low at the time, so he wasn't actually um, actively dying, dying or anything like that. Right. Um, he was just seeing so, he was so just, many he people. He was trying to get his ducks in a row. Yeah. He was trying to get his ducks in a row and you know get all the paperwork taken care of in case something happened. So yeah, but it just ended up he had, he and he stole my favorite client. <laughs> oh, but you've seen this whole population of people who've been rejected or felt yes. rejected. A lot of them felt rejected. Absolutely, and I had, you know, and a couple, you know, like I said, a lot of them had been or were current drug users in addition to their HIV status, and I had a handful that fit, you know, that were, they were tripled, you know, they had, I had a couple of severely bipolar um, clients that, you know, on top of being HIV positive and on top of not having a family support system, um, you know, that they just felt like nobody understood them and that they couldn't get anybody to talk to them and sit down with them and relate to them. Okay, so I can't say to you, do you think it's true that some people feel like no one understands them? But I will say to you that, don't you think as just a human being, because I know I feel that this way at times, that part of the experience is we all don't feel understood completely? I mean, to be really, I think I know my husband pretty well, and I know at times he accuses me of that. I mean, how well, I mean, like, you don't understand me. I don't know. I, how completely can I understand another human being? Even I feel the yearning to be understood more. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's part of just the human condition? This is a whole different, I mean, we're delving off a little bit here, which is, I think, great. This is what or, organic conversation is all about, is what common ground is all about. But I'm just saying, um, to a certain degree, people are not understood, but I do think everyone is not understood completely. Right. Right, and I think that we all want to be understood. Yeah. I think we all crave that as human beings. We want to feel some connection with somebody who gets it. Um, you know, and that's why as much as I hate social media at times, and I really, really hate it sometimes, um, <laughs> I love it because it's what brought me into relationships with some of the most amazing people I've never met in my life. 
and they are the other writers <laughs> that I've that I've met, and they understand me. Like they understand me in ways that people who I see every single day could never understand me because. I think that we're just kind of kindred spirits that we needed to find each other. And, you know, I mean, do any of them completely understand me? No, I don't think, I, I don't think anybody can completely understand me because I don't understand myself. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think, that, I think that is definitely part of the human condition. I think that, you know, we, I think especially as we, as we get older and we mature, that's what we crave more than anything else is we want to feel like somebody gets it, somebody understands us. And not just that they, that they understand us, but that they, they accept us for who we are in our bizarrely twisted ways, that they, they're they okay with it. And, you know, I think that the limitation comes in our willingness to understand other people. You know, we want to be understood, but are we willing to put the work into really, 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 really understanding someone else? And I think that's where it breaks down because, you know, you can't, you can't demand that everybody else understands you but then not be willing to, to do the work for other people. Well, this is where it gets, again, you know, I, I've used the word tricky now like four times, and I can't think of a better word. I mean, but there are things. When Now we're back on, like, addiction, and let's say we're talking about, again, it's tricky because drugs, some of them are legal, some of them aren't. I mean, alcohol is legal, but it's not something that we should be, you know, uh, some people are alcoholics, and that's a big problem. So... It gets. I think it gets. It gets really tricky because some things are right and some things are wrong. How do we stand on moral ground? I mean, can we say to someone who's um, in an addiction? But you're right, and you said earlier on, you know, they're not in rational thought and they're not. I don't think this disorder, disordered thinking. Um, though that's wrong. Though I mean, as a person who one of the things that you call for in your piece is support. How do we support someone? I mean, do we say to them, hey, what you're doing is wrong? I mean, like with your dad, do you feel he he continued to smoke? Um, um, Did that anger you, and did you feel like you lost that battle with him? Um, You know, when I was younger, it did. If I'm being completely honest, when I was younger, I was angry a lot. you know, I I couldn't understand why they wouldn't quit. I you know I used to I used to be mad. I would throw their cigarettes away, and then I'd get in trouble. Um, you know, all kinds of conflicts arose because I was mostly just because I was angry. But it stems from my not understanding the mechanisms of it all. Um, and the older I got, you know, the more I was just kind of like I don't want to say that I was complacent with it because I it, that's the wrong word. But I was I was more accepting of their reality. Um, you know, and once he was diagnosed with cancer there was no point for him to quit. You know, a lot of people would have said, oh, well, he should quit. Well, why? He's going to die anyway. You know, and that's the thing. Like, he was already stage four when he was diagnosed with cancer. We knew that he was not going to survive this. And if that's the case, then why put yourself through the torment of trying to quit? <laughs> you know, smoke with you on because, you know, it's, it's, the damage is already done. So, you know, why go through the whole process of and the struggle of trying to quit when it's not going to do you any good anyway, and it's just going to stress you out more. So, um, you know, it, it was it was definitely a growth for me in that process, seeing you know specific situations. You know, as mm-hmm. far as other as far as other drugs, I mean, it would be different, obviously, if you know if you were talking about a different kind of drug, I suppose. But um, you know, in his case, it was it was a drug that could have and did kill him. Um, you know, and he was he was addicted. I think he probably could have quit. But he didn't want to. 
and it didn't matter what I wanted because it, I wasn't the one making the choice. So it took me a long time to get to the point where I had to accept that, but I did. You did, really? Did you accept yep. it? Uh-huh. And you had no, no rage about it? No. But one of the things you say in your piece is you say addicts don't want to die. Do, do you think that they don't want to die? I don't think so. I don't think, think anybody, I mean, unless unless you actually have suicidal ideations, unless, like, that's part of your thing, which if you're suicidal, right. then there's underlying mental health. You know, I don't think people using any drug or have of any kind of addiction, I mean, you can be addicted to anything. I don't think people yeah. who are addicted wake up on any given day and say, you know what, I want to die today, and I'm going to do it this way. You know, I don't think that that's how it works. I, I do really drinking myself to death or whatever, right. Right. I mean, you know, if you know, there's certain times that people might be using that substance with the goal of suicide at some point. You know, I mean, I've I've seen mm-hmm. that happen too. Um, you know, that that it is an intentional and deliberate choice on their part to try to kill themselves this way with this substance. Um, you know, but for the vast majority of your, you know, your daily addict, no, I don't think so. You don't think Unless that that's actually- the intent. No, I you know unless there's unless there's an unless there's an aspect of of being suicidal that's a component of it. No, I think they are just trying to feel better, feel nothing, feel normal, whatever they want to feel, feel happy. For right now, I think it's a short-term thing. I think it's a you know it's not a long-term opinion. They think that tomorrow is going to be different, or at least they want to believe that it can be. And with your dad, who was addicted to cigarette smoking and nicotine. Um, he was so just the habit of smoking, uh, the ritual. He just couldn't couldn't break. Did he ever try to quit? He did. He did, and he did quit successfully a couple of times. Um, you know, like looking back on it now, I couldn't even tell you how long he had quit for. Um, and when he started back up again, I because I don't, you know, I kind of block that from my memory because then I'll get mad again. Um, you know, but, I mean, he, he probably could have quit, but he didn't He didn't want to, I don't think. No, and that's sort of like what we're talking about. And I tell you, 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 have, you love your dad. I've, I've seen um, the piece you wrote about your dad. And, oh, my gosh, I could cry. I love my dad, too. He's amazing. <laughs> so there's nothing... Um, takes away, you know, um, minimizes, hey, my dad is not a perfect man either. I'm just, I'm, we're just, but because we're talking about addiction and it's just an experience that you had with, a, you know, with a kind of addiction, and I like it using it as an example because it's not an illegal substance. You know what I mean? Right, right. Understanding your process and just being able to step back and say, you know what, they tried, this is their life, um, their decision, and you were able to step back, be forgiving, and let it go and still love him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing. You know, I think that, you know, what what bothers me is, you know, and I think this probably originated from when I was working at the uh, the legal clinic with all my patients or my clients that were dying, um, you know, is that I, I see... I see so much resentment and frustration and anger that's built up and built up and built up in families. And then, you know, at the end... Does any of that matter? I don't. I mean, I don't think so. I think that all that matters in the end is that you love them, and um, you know, I know it was that way for me. So, you know, in the end, none of the rest of it matters. 
you know, and it's their life and it's not your life and you can't take their choices personally because it's not about you. Like, it was never about you. It was about them and it was about their choices. And, it, you know, it's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept. I'm not going to pretend that it was easy for me to accept it, but I had to. And it, you know, and it's one of those things, like, you know, I mean, when my father died, there is not a single word that was left unsaid between us. There are no regrets. We were in a perfectly good place. You know, it was like my last time I kissed him, I said, okay, I love you, Dad, goodbye. And that was it. You know, like every, I mean, there were, there was no stone left unturned. And, you know, I think that the only way that we could have ever gotten to that point was if I just accepted who he was and let it go. Kelly, you know, you said the most profound thing. It's not about you. Like, his smoking wasn't about you. Uh, my brother's, um, well, his many issues with drugs is so varied, um, were not really about me. They were not a personal affront to me. Mm-mm. It's sort of hard, wouldn't you say, for anyone who's listening, and I hope there are a lot of people either listening or who will listen, isn't it hard not to take it personally, especially when it's someone that you love? Well, of course it's hard. I mean, you know, it's hard to t- it's hard not to take anything personally, but especially when it's something <laughs> that is so painful, you know. I mean, and that's the thing is that, you know, it's, it's you know, you w- I think part of it is that we want to believe that they will be better people for us, differently for us or whatever. And it's like, well, but, you know, once you remove yourself from the equation and you understand that, you know, what they're doing has really nothing to do with you, you might be collateral damage but you're not what's their motivating factor. You're not why they're doing this. You know, you have really nothing to do with it, except maybe you're getting hurt on the back end. You know, and it's it's a hard thing to accept, but that's just, you know, once you, once, and I think that's where, I think that's where the acceptance can come in easier. I think that's where the forgiveness can come in a lot quicker, because once you realize that it's not about you and that they were never trying to hurt you, that it was never an intentional thing that they, you know, I mean, it's like the whole, like, not wanting to die thing. It's not like they woke up one morning and said, hey, you know what, I'm going to get back at my sister, so I'm going to use drugs today, and then I'm going to go broke, and I'm going to ask her for money. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, I, and I, I don't mean to say that, like, so crucially, but, but that's, you know, I don't think that that's what happens. They don't, because it's not about you. It's about them, and it's about what they need or want or think they need or want in that moment. It's not okay, about okay, that's a good. that's a good point, though. So then, in effect, is that woman, getting back to her, is that narcissistic, though? And I say that because my brother has a daughter. It's affected her, you know, certainly a lot more than it's affected me. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of like... Isn't his love, even for her, as, as his child, big enough that he could just get his act together. See, this is where I understand, like probably like you do, both sides of it. I feel like I understand the people who were like, get your act together, you have a daughter and responsibilities, and the part of it were like, I'm in my car, I need to eat. I get both sides. Right. Just, uh, right, you know, well, I'm and I think that... Sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, no Kelly, because you know, this is important. Do you think that it can become extremely narcissistic, I guess? The user or the people around them? For the user. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I'll, it's all about Every them. human being is inherently selfish. I mean, that's, that's the nature of human beings. Have you ever seen a two-year-old? I mean, you know, we're naturally selfish. We want what we want. We want it now. We don't want to wait. Um, you know, but we are <laughs> supposed to learn how to care about other people. We're supposed to learn empathy and compassion and all of those things. And we're supposed to be aware of 
the consequences of our actions and how they hurt other people. You know, and at some point you're supposed to take ownership for all of that stuff when you're an adult. Um, you know, but when you get into these these cycles, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, when you're so focused on just getting what you need to get today so that you can get through today, you're not worrying about anybody else. You're not worrying about what happens, you know, down the road. You're not worrying about who you're hurting. You just want to fix whatever this is right now. And, That's you know, is it, is, it, is it just selfishness? Yeah, probably. I mean, there's definitely an, I mean, there, undeniably there's an aspect of it that is selfish. But I don't think it's just that because if it was just that, people would quit all the time. You know, anytime a person who has a kid who, like, has this some sudden epiphany moment where they're like, oh, my gosh, I have a child and I have to fix myself for my child, anybody who ever had that epiphany would quit and it would be over. But addictions are more complicated than that. It's not that simple. And, you know, the, whether there's a, an infrastructure in place to help that person, whether there's mechanisms in place to help that person, whether that person has people around them that will be supportive, you know, all of those are going to be important as far as whether that person is successful or not. It's not as simple as just saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, do you have to say that to get better? Absolutely. But that's not the only thing that goes into it. No, I mean, you're right. You're right. I mean, there's just that, that side of the whole thing that angers me. And you're, and you're right because it is completely irrational and there's that disordered thinking component. And then there's uh, getting better, getting help, getting involved maybe with the 12-step program and, and getting better, getting around other people who have had similar experiences and then hopefully staying in that place. But it is. It's a, it's a daily battle. I battle really serious anxiety. It is just, it has been my, oh, my gosh, my Achilles heel, like I cannot tell you. I mean, you would never want to be in a car with me. I'm just sweating. I mean, I'm in the car driving, but not enjoying it at all. I just, I don't know if that relationship with the vehicle will ever change for me. I just still continue to drive and try to, you know, try all these little tricks to breathe, et cetera, et cetera. But so I do, there is a part of me that understands that we are all so weak. We're all so weak. We all of our stuff. And I think that's for me is when you wrote that, I'm like, this is a woman who gets it, and she probably has to understand her own delicate and her own flaws to be able to say everything she's saying, because you have to be able to, what is that in Scripture, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of somebody else's? Who among us? I mean, I think we all think we're better than who we are. When I look at myself really honestly, I'm like, oh, yuck. <laughs> so, well, and I think, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, we and, you know, I think part of it goes back to our, just our society's obsession with, you know, you're not supposed to be depressed because you're supposed to be happy and you're supposed to be all of these things and you're supposed to make good choices and you're supposed to, you know, there's this illusion of what we're supposed to be like. And then there's reality. And in reality, <laughs> we all have our problems. Every single one of us has something, like, fundamentally wrong with us. You know, is it something huge and life-altering? Not always. Is it something that we can fix? Maybe. You know, but we all have we all have our flaws. And, you know, to believe that we don't or that we can just overcome them all, you know, I don't know that that's really true. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I think part of being a self-actualized person is, first of, first of all, admitting that you have these flaws and then figuring out how to live with them, you know, and figuring out how to cope with them and figuring out how to 
maybe improve on what you can do differently or how it can affect other people or how you can use it as an asset instead of something that hurts you. You know, but this idea that, you know, we're all supposed to be, you know, perfect and we can judge everybody else because they're not, you know, that's just that's just wrong. I mean, we, we all have our problems and admitting it's the first step. <laughs> admitting it is the first step. No, it is it is how we cope and how we incorporate it into our lives and how we every day get up and face our demons again. I don't know if you're like this, but as a mom, I'm like this for sure. I mean, every day I get up and I say, okay, I'm really going to do it better today. Now, I mean, what a joke. I mean, but I really mean it when I say it. I do. And I have to tell you, I really do make that effort. I make that effort to get them to school on time. I mean, I say, when, and when I feel like I fail and I don't, you know, those things aren't achieved, I mean, at least I try to incorporate all of these things. When I say to the girls all the time, you are living with a flawed person. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I really try, and I really try to get the love piece of it right. You know, I try to love them. But I'm filled with my things, you know, and my shortcomings. And I think um, the one good thing about maybe this generation, and it wasn't like this with my mom and dad, my mom and dad could have never said that to me. Right. They just, they, you know, they were very authoritarian. Good people, mm-hmm. let me just say that, great people. But that's just how they were. I mean, they weren't like, hey, listen, I'm flawed. It was like, no. You know, they, they didn't even go there. You know, I'm like, No, because, because in our, you know, they, they were the parents. They were the rulers of the land, and they knew everything. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you know, where, you know, by the time we get to be adults, of course, we've, like, figured out that, well, I don't think that they really knew everything that they said they thought they knew. And, you know, <laughs> you know, I, and I do, I do agree with you for sure. I think that, you know, for the most part, people in our generation are a little bit more open with that when it comes to that kind of stuff as far as parenting goes, at least I hope so. Absolutely. And and I think this is why for the majority of – I didn't even read all of the pages of the response on your blog um, to this amazing article and piece that you wrote. But from what I did read, it was so many more people saying, bravo, thank you. It was so um, – bringing up the complexity of the issue and being supportive and not just pointing fingers. Um, you're pretty sure he didn't want to die with a needle in his arm. Yeah, I'm going to go with you a big yes on that one. You know what I mean? It's just, mm-hmm. it's just complex and it's shades of gray. It's really not black or white. No, it really isn't. I mean, but then, you, you know, but people aren't comfortable with that. You know I mean? Again, because we live in a society where we, see, we think there's something wrong with us and we want to go get a pill to fix it. You know, it's easier if things are black and white. It's easier if we can say, this is right, this is wrong, you know, because then we can categorize ourselves and we can say, well, I'm, I'm over here on this side, so I'm good. And that person over there on that side is in this category, so they're bad. You know, where really we're all kind of floating around in the middle somewhere. Yes. Yes. 100% yes. Okay, now that was, that was like an hour we just talked. See how wonderful and easy it was? <laughs> Um, I want to just make a plug for your blog. Okay, Kelly DeBee, and it's, I think it's, Beehive, say what your blog is again. It's the Beehive, Beehive or something. De, yeah, Beehive. say it. Just, the Beehive. Yeah, the name no, of it is spell the it Beehive. Out. Spell it out, though. It's um, D-E-B-I-E-H-I-V-E dot blogspot dot com. Yes, because I think anyone who is listening now or going to listen very shortly um, needs to look at your blog, 